we're back. Howdy doody. This is, uh, you know, everybody's favorite internet here. Doing it again. Entering names. Yeah, that's right. Right here. Um, got a sitting thanks guest. Thanks for coming back. We do have, if you hear some <laughs> some uh, high shrill cackling, <laughs> we have a kidnap victim in it's here. We're forcing me. to listen. It's definitely not Chris, but it's our first live episode, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, if, you, um, if you enter the sweepstakes, maybe you could win right. the chance it's to our first make us food. And yeah, that's out. right. You can come and you can come and make us food. Uh, um, so if you haven't been here before, we do a theme. So today's theme is uh, Black History Month or Black History, I guess. So yeah. both of us have a topic. I'm Zach, and that's Chris. Just in case you don't know, we already did that, didn't we? No, we, we do just that? Yeah, whatever. Um, if you don't know that, and yet. both of our topics are in the theme, and but we don't know what the other one's gonna, what the other one has planned in the theme. So, indeed, you know, that's the overview as good as we're gonna get it. If you've been here before, you know it. Yeah, that's right. Hopefully, if you not all of you have you been here before. It out. We don't know what's going on. <laughs> anyway. That's what you need to know. <laughs> so, if you just keep that in mind, then this whole thing will be great. <laughs> so. Well, this has, you know, we'll get to some <clears throat> black history stuff here in a little bit, but yeah. before we do, we'll talk about some other stuff, because it's February, which is Black History Month, but it's also a leap year, right? And this woman in Oklahoma turns 100 this year on, on February 29th. Oh, wow. But it's really just her 25th birthday. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Tell me more. Well, her name's Mary Forsyth. She was born on February 29th, 1924. And so this year will be her 25th birthday party, even though she turns 100. So I just I kind of thought it was interesting. That's about it for that story. But, um, I mean, I still don't understand why it would be her 25th birthday party. Well, so she only had a birthday party on her birthday. She only has a birthday every four years. Oh, I got you right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, technically, yeah. yeah. Well, sure. I mean, but if she celebrates on the 28th or the 1st, yeah. it's not the 29th. I bet you she celebrated I'm more. I'm sure she did. Yeah. She's been kegging it for 100 years now. <laughs> 100 years. Happy birthday to that lady. Happy birthday indeed. I mean, Anyways. 25 or 124 or whatever it is, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, 100's a lot more. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Good um, story. Did you ever lose a tooth when you were a kid? Never did. No, I still no. got all my baby teeth. That's good. That's yep. a rare thing. <laughs> They're really big. Uh, <laughs> your head just got smaller. Um, so you, you've met the tooth fairy. I never did actually meet the tooth fairy. I only met, got the droppings from the tooth fairy. How much did you fairy. get from the tooth fairy? Uh, usually it was a dollar. Well, times they have changed. <laughs> this uh, this article is talking about the tooth fairy's balling these days, giving children... All sorts of gifts, Air Jordans, hundred dollar bills, <laughs> wow, and designer jewelry. Jeez, the the U.S. national average for a tooth fairy gift has risen. In two thousand one, it was just under two dollars. Twenty twenty three, it's more than six dollars. <laughs> just under two dollars. Like I got a buck seventy three under my yeah, pillow. It's a bunch of pennies under there. <laughs> Chew on these. I want more teeth. <laughs> Um, this was polling by Delta Dental, but some parents, so the, the, the average went up to $6 last year wow. for, for one tooth. Um, spoiler alert. It's just going into a bag in your, in your mom's underwear drawer <laughs> is where the teeth are going to be saved. I mean, I'd definitely be saving them if I were a parent. Um, I don't know. 
I'm yeah, you might need them later. <laughs> a uh, former dentist who uh, runs AskTheDentist.com said that children can receive cash, video games, sometimes even iPhones wow. to, for losing teeth. This lady, Chadera Nig, and she's from the UK, she gave her daughter 60 pounds, a letter, a silver fairy necklace, and a Louis Vuitton bracelet. Wow. Just for losing her first baby tooth. And so, like, I don't know, what is that, like, maybe two years old? Maybe? Maybe two and a half I or three? Maybe you lose them a little bit. Yeah, I don't really remember. So this kid's, like, two with a Louis Vuitton bracelet. So <laughs> I mean, just give your kid, like, candy if you want yeah, to get just, more teeth. Just for being a victim of nature. Right. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, well, you know. So um, what gets me is the average of six bucks. So I'm like, are there some fucking people? Excuse my language out there giving seven dollars. Well, the average is six. So <laughs> well, if right. I give one so, I mean, and you give twenty, then that's so going to average they're it down, right? Giving somewhere between five and ten dollars. Yeah, which means and that some kid, people are giving seven look, fucking dollars. Let's be honest, the kids are already mooching from you constantly. You don't need to give them an extra ten. <laughs> right. I'm like, round He's down get or the round video up. Game. <laughs> right. um, yeah. Anyway. Hmm. They, uh, she said that was the first, her baby, her baby, that was her first baby tooth that she lost and the process was uncomfortable for her. So we decided to give her the extra tooth fairy experience. Childhood goes by so fast and we believe in cherishing every moment, celebrating milestones and creating long lasting memories. It was a, I mean, I'd also argue that like, is this kid going to remember? I don't remember losing my first tooth. <laughs> right. I mean, the celebration sounds like it's more for the parents sure. than the kid, I, I, That's but, uh, what it's come down to is a lot of uh, um, competition between parents. Sure. Oh, well, little Cindy lost a tooth and they got an iPhone. Now, if the kid's like seven or eight, I, I can see like doing a little event, you know, just to right. like, have fun yeah, with it. But, your last tooth or right, something. Sure. Maybe a Louis Vuitton bag is They used to just tie a, a string around it and tie it to a doorknob and slam the door and get on with or your day. at least pretend to. Yeah, have lunch, go on about your day. At eat, least put the fear in. Eat this apple, we need to get rid of this tooth. Um, Gotta learn the This fear. other lady said that she gave her daughter three one-pound coins. So this is in Britain, or England. Um, and two chocolate coins. So she, she was just like, let's get the rest of these things so you out of some there. melted-ass chocolate that's under more, your pillow. That's more. Yeah, right. <laughs> Hey, did somebody doo-doo under the pillow last night? <laughs> no, it's too fair. Left me here. 75 cents and a turd <laughs> yeah. wrapped in foil. That damn tooth fairy. <laughs> so, you know, I'd say do what you want with your kid. I don't care. I, mean, I don't have them. But. Yeah, I mean. Five bucks, maybe? That seems pricey. I mean. I mean, I can see five bucks. It seems I used to mow much, lawns but... for like like 15 or 20 bucks tops right and now you're getting 20 bucks for a tooth Come i on. mean there's five bucks but then a dollar doesn't really seem special enough these days i guess I, I right yeah you gotta get them at least a dollar 27 and, and so they can go to the three dollar tree. is just odd kind of like seven because i know you people are out there apparently right yeah me um also yeah. the tooth fairy isn't the only one that's been hit with this kind of uh, inflation they're saying <laughs> easter bunny more minor se- milestones are being celebrated by parents Global searches on Pinterest were up 100% for potty training rewards ideas, 90% for end-of-year school party ideas, and 40% for my first tooth party just between September 2021 and uh, August 2023. That's according to the Wall Street Journal, which I'm glad to see there. You know, all the things going on in the world, they're, like, focused on 
potty training rewards. Although, I mean, that kind of data is probably pretty easy to come by with a little bit of a little bit yeah. of work. So, um, anyways, so watch out that lady. Watch out for that lady that sneaks into your kid's bedroom and leaves them iPhones. That's a little shady to me. And handbags, yeah, <laughs> and turds wrapped in foil. That's right, but they're chocolate flavored turds. That's where the good short story comes in. Yeah, there we Ooh. go. We well, might that be might be a special event. <laughs> Um, not much of a segue here at all, but uh, we were. Um, Chris is eating a chocolate coin. Surprise! <laughs> right. But um, someone recently got the uh, the plague. Yeah, that plague, the bubonic plague. Right. Um, out there in Oregon, but uh, the article I'm looking at Damn here, hippies. the headline reads: "Can your cat give you the plague?" Because apparently this person got the plague from their cat. Okay. Um, who did eventually die from it, according to this article? But the cat um, did. Oh, yeah, okay. the cat, which was symptomatic, died from the infection, but the human patient is currently recovering. So uh, no additional cases related to that one anyway. Apparently, though, out west, in the western United States, it's uh, pretty common in rodents and wildlife to, to have the bubonic plague. Well, oh, yeah, that's that's how it spread, right? Right, yeah, like that's kind of the point well, of this article. I on, uh, on rats is what it really Right, or was. fleas. Fleas, yeah. yeah. Picture of a flea there for this article. Mm, but, yeah. Delicious. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, that's pretty much that's the story, like people still getting pillow. the plague. <laughs> but yeah, apparently there's something like 10 cases a year, or on average, like something worldwide like 10 or? cases in the U.S., okay. like, but uh, worldwide it definitely still happens, but it's uh, obviously not the plague that wiped out most of Europe back in the day. Well, not most of Europe, but what, like a third? A I lot think, of, of Europe. Europe like, maybe more than a third. A lot of Europe. <laughs> so yeah, people still getting the plague out there. So they were like probably petting around and like stirring up some dander that got up well in they say nostrils. if you have a cat who uh goes outside does a lot of hunting you mm-hmm. have an outdoor cat and yeah. uh, they also spend time indoors that you know you should uh, get it checked at the vet pretty often because lots of the wildlife out out west have uh the plague the wildlife yeah. the wildlife i guess probably the fleas carry the plague but yeah yeah so hmm. yeah watch out if you have cats and you're living out west, listen to us. Well, just leave them in or out. Don't do both. Never, I vote on Never the twain They say it's meet. cruel, but leave them in. You love your little baby. I guess it depends on the cat. My parents' cat wouldn't last 15 minutes outside. Well, it's because they've spent so much time the inside. Cat, the cat weighs as much as I do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean. Yeah. yeah, that's just poor cat. Rest in peace, mutton. Yeah, mittens. for sure. But yeah, Was I guess it mittens so. that they named the cat? <laughs> they didn't... Uh, didn't give the name of the cat, which Muff, is actually Muffy. kind of a travesty. They should have given the name of the cat. Yeah, it's probably dumb. <laughs> the name the name might actually be dumb. <laughs> Bubonic yeah. was the name of the cat. <laughs> I know there's a little dog out there that I call Dum Dum sometimes, All and right. he responds to it. His name is not Dum Dum. Hmm. Well, I've got a Dum Dum for you. All right. It's a world record too, and this is a made up world record, and it's the first guy to ever do it. <laughs> the largest turd under a pillow ever. Odd activity sets. Guinness World Record, it says, on whatever this says. Oh, it's on Fox News, so it's oh, 100% true. <laughs> um, and this guy's in from Den- is in from, no, he is from Denmark. And uh, he broke the world record for, I'll tell you his name first, is Peter Von Tengen Buskoff. Oh, wow. And he's 39. It almost sounds like you're saying something dirty. And he, I think in Denmark it is. <laughs> Have you tried the old Von Tangen Buskoff? <laughs> it's, it's a move. Um, yes. Put your heel up here. He, uh, well, he's 39 or something. I just lost that page. Hold on a second. Uh-oh. 
Um, He's losing pages. This is the way uh, music. He's the first person <laughs> to hold the record for most matches held in nose. Oh, like striking matches, like fire. Yeah, right, right. But I mean, they weren't on fire, which I think would be a cooler record. It would be cool if you light them up once. You in get order to achieve the record, he had to insert at least forty-five matches into his nostrils. Oof. But he decided to go further, put twenty-three more in, and called it quits at sixty-eight. <laughs> so this guy had sixty-eight. There's a video that's online that shows him inserting bunches of matches into his nose at once. Rather than placing them one by one, <laughs> so you did. I mean, that's probably because I, I was thinking just, it's going to tickle. You're going to sneeze. He just like stuck his nostril out, and um, he claims that the record attempt didn't really hurt. Much to his surprise, he said, "I have fairly large nostrils and quite stretchy skin." Sorry, that's a. I'm sure that helped a lot. Uh, he's open to the idea of breaking his own record in the future, either by training his nostrils. Or by letting nature run its course. I don't know what that would mean. <laughs> he looks ridiculous. <laughs> um, he came up with the idea himself for the record, no shit, uh, thinking of the potential of fun records he could either set or break. And as we found out on this show a lot, that you can just do anything. If you do it, you can make it into a world record. <laughs> I do think it's funny to watch the video. I see the picture of this guy with like... Like thirty-five matches sticking out of each one of his nostrils. He looks like Andy Reid, <laughs> like a big old mustache of matches sticking out. He's like, "Hey guys, what's up?" Thumbs up. Yeah. Um, oh lord. I always try to look for the interesting and peculiar aspects of life. <clears throat> Whatever Von Tangen Buskoff says. Excuse you. <laughs> there are so many amazing things to experience, see, or do if we just stay open for it. Of all the things he could have done, he's in Denmark. They get like 15 paid weeks of vacation every year. Like he decided to like put matches up his Preaching nose. open-mindedness by putting matches up your nose. I mean, I guess whatever it takes. Yeah, know. I mean, you know, he says to, for others to not forget to play a little. Well, now I'm like just looking at people's noses. Is I, I wonder if like you had somebody like Abe Vigoda, how many matches you could get up into that thing. Yeah, that guy's nose was huge. Abe Vigoda. Or uh, what's that actor that was in, like, The Pianist or whatever with the Adrian Brody? Doesn't he have a giant Adrian, Adrian Brody does have a giant nose. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know Abe Vigoda. Yeah. He's in yeah. Godfather and a bunch of other stuff. Anyway, so congrats to uh, Von Tangen Buskoff. Von Tangen Buskoff. Yeah, Peter. Is it Buskopf? B-U-S-K-O-V. Ah, so I'm Buskov. sure it's, not, it's in Denmark, so I'm sure it's not said like a dipshit from southwest virginia would say <laughs> Who, who's that you oh uh, okay uh, anyway right. so, i don't have any uh, i mean i've got a thing i, I found out but i uh, don't well, have any I've more got news something i found out i just gotta find it uh, on my if computer. you're not ready to go there yet though if I'll you got go more first. news i'm having huh? fun listening to the news i don't know if there's any more news I, it was a weird news week lots of news but nothing uh, that we want to talk about nothing about, really uh, that's you know, stellar I think if you want to get into the real news i guess um we can go into the, hey, I just found this out because this one's sort of relative because it's about San Francisco, which was just in the uh-uh. Super Bowl. Go Niners. Um, their Market Street subway, part of their metro system, mm-hmm. is a little outdated, I would think, because it runs on floppy disks. <laughs> it, like, eats them? <laughs> no. The technology for crucial operations for the municipal transportation agency 
is using five inch floppy disks. Holy crap! Like so the like, big ones, the big floppy disks. So the software is from the i. It's it's used by IBM computers during the Reagan administration. Wow. And uh, jeez, they've been trying to get funding for it, but I don't think they really care because this has been. Like, since the Reagan I mean, isn't that like technological wonderland <laughs> out there? Like, I mean, that's what people think is so amazing. That, like, there's all this like Silicon Valley stuff, and there's like this thing that it's using. What is it? It's, it's, I, it doesn't say how many that it's using, but it's using old first generation floppy disks. Wow! Before floppy disks were the hard floppy. I mean, it's disappointing and impressive all at the same time. Well, just so you know. It's hardly unique that they do this because as recently as 2020, British Airways were loading avionics software onto 747s using floppy disks. Huh. Um, an iPhone today has 100,000 times the computing power of the machines that NASA used to put men on the moon. And you can't even, like, then you think about, like, the amount of information that, like, one floppy disk holds, which is nothing. <laughs> right. Well... And then they're like, oh, we're going to run our uh, metro system on this. Well, it's, it's obvious. It's like, well, it doesn't take much to run the system, so it seems like it would be easy enough just to update that shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, and right. probably not even all, well, maybe more expensive than But, I mean, sounds, now you've got to, like, keep all this machinery up. You've got to, right. uh, you know, like, it would it seemed like it would cost more to just keep using the floppies than it would be to update. Well, right. Yeah. you got a 1980s yeah. computer that you got to keep... <laughs> working there's only like nine guys in the world that can still work on that didn't i tell a story one episode about the the time john teeter yeah john teeter had uh, come back from the future to uh find that computer because they needed that computer to go to the future to fix the problem they were going to have with computers running out of time you know like the y2k of the future basically so he came back for that old well he skipped out on going to san francisco (laughs) yeah he skipped out on helping out the subway system in san francisco so they yeah they've been those those discs have been obsolete for thirty years or more and they're still using them to run at least part of the San Francisco metro system or wow. subway system whatever it is I mean and still impressive and disappointing all at the same time yeah so I just found that out yeah so did you find anything out oh uh, right yeah um well our, our sit-in guest. <laughs> <laughs> just offered up that perhaps it was a security thing, a security issue uh, for uh, oh. you know, as far as as far as all that's concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, people breaking into the system and all of that stuff. So right, like oh, it's harder to hack because it's so right. ancient. Because you can't get into it because yeah, it's not yeah. connected to anything like voting, else. Voting systems yeah, aren't yeah, like to the internet, like a closed system. So, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Well, yeah, that I'd sounds like sounds like probably, a bunch of fake news to me. Probably right. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like fake news, but I bet you... It's you know, real news. Simplest solution. Because that right? was on... Uh, I mean, I found that out, and that was on San Francisco Standard. Ah. So, I mean, it's, it must be true. <laughs> it was on Google. Well, um, my thing I found out, I actually found out last week, and it was one of the things I didn't talk about last week, but uh, I had never heard of um, this uh, musician, uh, Mojo Nixon. You ever heard of Mojo Nixon? No. Um, he uh, Mojo Nixon, who mixed roots and punk rock, dies at 66. So he died a couple of weeks ago at this point. Self-described voice of the doomed, the damned, the weird. He was known for satirical songs like Elvis is Everywhere and Destroy All Lawyers. 
(laughs) Never heard of him. So I'm just going to read a little bit about him. This is a New York Times article about him. Found it quite interesting. I was like, how the hell have I never heard of this guy? Mojo Nixon, the singer, songwriter, and radio host who rocketed from the lunatic fringe of the 1980s underground music to national attention with his rabble-rousing shots at celebrity culture like the 1987 hit Elvis is Everywhere and snarky social commentary like the 86 song I Hate Banks died on Wednesday aboard a country music cruise. He was 66. Oh, my God. What yeah. a horrible place to die. <laughs> His death was confirmed by Matt Eske, the director of The Mojo Manifesto, a 2020 documentary about Mr. Nixon. He said that Mr. Nixon had a cardiac event while he was asleep as the outlaw country cruise was docked in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So, yeah, he was a he was a guest. He was one of the, wow. like, musicians. Yeah, okay. He was kind of a rockabilly dude. He had become right. a rockabilly That's dude. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I like the names of his songs. I listened to some of them, too. I think I'm more curious, though, is to find out about what a country music cruise is. Outlaw country cruise? Yeah. Yeah, for real. I did not look that That, up, but I was like, wow, that of course that exists. Mojo Nixon was his name? Yeah, Mojo Nixon. Hmm. Um, He caught fire in the 1980s by drawing together disparate strings of American eccentricity, the manic energy of Jerry Lee Lewis, the anti-establishment politics of punk rock, the antics of 1970s Elvis Presley, and the pious theatrics of televangelists, and then spitting them back in the form of intentionally offensive songs like Don Henley Must Die and Debbie Gibson is Pregnant with My Two-Headed Love Child. I, I like at least one of his song titles. Right. I won't mention which one, but you know, yeah. if you're ever in a hotel in California, you might hear. Yeah, I figured that was the one you were talking about. You love the Eagles. Jeez. His genre was primarily psychobilly. So yeah, psychobilly, which right. blends punk, country, and rockabilly. Yeah, I hadn't heard of psychobilly, but uh, it was um, blah blah blah. Country and rockabilly with heavy bass lines, onstage theatrics, and oversized doses of cultural detritus like B-grade horror movies, hot rods, and biker gangs. So that's the kind All of right. dude he was. Like I'll, this picture of him. Oh yeah, he looks yeah, like he'd be right. on like uh, that. Remember that old documentary called "The Wild and Wonderful Whites of West Virginia"? Yeah, exactly. He looks like the, the the patriarch of that family. I can't remember what his name was. But I didn't get to look up any of his like. I'd like to hear him on the radio you know there's lots of stuff out there with him on the radio but i did listen to some of the songs um let's see his real name was neil mcmillan it was a mashup his stage name though mojo nixon was a mashup of two ends of american culture mojo a synonym for unchecked sexual energy popularized by the doors in la woman and nixon as in richard m who for many people stood for all that was hypocritical and corrupt about cultural conservatism Huh. So, yeah, Mojo Nixon. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, Jesco White was that guy's name. Was the, yeah, Jesco the, White. The, the tap dancing outlaw or whatever. Right. Man could tap dance, though, right? On a, only on picnic tables. <laughs> so, yeah, great article. Of course, I'm not going to read any more of it. But, uh, yeah, Mojo Nixon, whom I'd never heard huh. of. Sounded like I should have heard of him. but uh, I mean, I might check him out. Yeah, I'm definitely uh, I'm going to check more of him I just found that out myself. I listened Good. to uh, Elvis is Everywhere, and it was uh, pretty hilarious. Yeah, yep. I think I know what I'm going to listen to. <laughs> right. We might, have, go a, for the we, we might have a new uh, theme song. You never know. <laughs> right? So there you go. Cool. <laughs> oh, wait. One other. His music could often be heard at the lower end of the radio dial on college radio and other pro- proto-alt-rock programming alongside acts like Dread Zeppelin, Jello Biafra, and Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys. Okay. <laughs> so, I've yeah. definitely heard of Kinky Friedman. Yep. 
Yeah, Kinky Friedman writes a bunch of books too. I think same Kinky Friedman, I would guess. But anyway, I doubt there's that many. It's not like John think. Smith. There's not like <laughs> right. there's 337 Although Kinky Friedmans in America. Who's that coach in the NFL that has that freaking crazy name? But there's another guy the same. Well, uh, it was his dad though, wasn't it? Wasn't Shanahan? No, no, like that. I mean, that's a weird name, but yeah. Like anyway, I'll think of it. You Booger know, McFarlane. I wake up at three in the morning. Right. Anyway, a pagoda. Well, no. <laughs> Definitely. Head coach of the Texans. Um, okay, cool. In the so, eighth round. We're going to get into our topic, I guess, for this week. And you get to go first. Black history. Young sir. And I'm, I, you know, all history is great, but you don't hear about a lot of this stuff because it's been kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, whitewashed. That you yeah. don't hear about some of these people. And I'm going to tell you about somebody that's like, you should have heard about this guy. So, I'm going to go back in American history, back to my favorite time, which is the 18 Scaries. <laughs> I'm going to tell you all about this guy. He's a true legend. He might be the OG. Right. All right? So, he's a I little... Mean, all right. I said that into my water he's bottle. A, he's, a little, he's a little <laughs> bit Frodo Baggins mixed with some Andy Dufresne. Uh, sprinkle some John McClane on top and alongside a big helping of Atticus Finch. So, like, this guy's a little bit of everything, man. Wow, all right. Okay, so... Uh, all of those guys you listed, is is he a black guy, a white guy? He's What's a black guy? guy. Okay, all right. Um, his name's Robert Smalls, and this guy should have all the movies made about him. Like, <laughs> he's amazing. With a name like Bobby Smalls? Robert Smalls, no relation to Biggie Smalls. <laughs> he was born April 5th, 1839 in Beaufort, South Carolina, not to be confused with Beaufort, North Carolina. He's in Beaufort, South Carolina, to a, an, a slave woman named Lydia Polite. Now, Lydia was owned Spelled by... Like Polite? Yep. Lydia was owned by Henry McKee, who uh, could possibly have been Robert's father. There's no record of a father, but he took a liking to Robert as a child yeah. and took care of him, so I'm assuming he probably was the father. I uh, couldn't really find much about it, but... Lydia was a servant in the house, but had grown up out in the fields, but then when she got to the house, you know, whatever. Um, and Robert, like I said, was a favorite of McKee. And because of this, his mother was worried that uh, Robert would grow up not understanding what other slaves that worked the fields had to go through. So she made Robert have to work in the fields and to witness all the horrific things that would happen to other slaves. Right, and like you this know. is pre eighteen fifties. He was yeah. born in eighteen thirty nine. Yeah. Okay. Um when he was twelve, his mother asked their master remember his name's Asshole McKee, um <laughs> to send Robert to Charleston, which is about seventy miles away, to work as a laborer. Um Robert was rented out to another asshole and then was paid sixteen dollars a week, which was about six hundred and thirty dollars today, which um, Robert was allowed to keep a dollar of that every week. So every week he made 16, the master got 15, and he got one. I was getting ready to say, wow, it sounds like he's making money. What's going on now? No, he, it was around $40 today. So he was making $40 a week to do all sorts of stuff. When he first got to Charleston, he was working in a hotel. Um, he did other things. like He was a street lamp lighter, and back when you had to go out and light the street lamps. Mm-hmm. And because he was living on the water, as he got older, he developed this love for the ocean, and he turned that into a new job working on the docks. 
of Charleston. And he became a longshoreman who was loading and unloading boats and eventually worked up to being on boats, working as a sailmaker, a rigger, and eventually becoming a wheelman, which... A wheelman okay. is this is a helmsman, a okay. pilot, but a, a slave could not be called gotcha. a wheelman. So, um, or sorry, they, they could be called a helmsman. Um, it's the proper title. So he title. was called a wheelman. He was called a wheelman. Gotcha. Uh, so while working on the boats in the area, he became really, really knowledgeable about the Charleston Harbor, which has a lot of you know unique. Like all harbors, you have to know what you're doing to get through those. Right. It's Especially like driving on roads. East Coast seems to be. This was like a lot that. of pre dredging right. before they, you know, he was running short, shallow bottom boats and things like that. Um, and he eventually got a job on a wood burning side wheel steamer called the Planter. It's a steam engine with the paddle on the side. Okay. Um, when he was 17, he married another slave who worked as a hotel maid, and uh, her name was Hannah Jones. She already had two kids and was five years older, but, you know, that was fine. They in love. Yeah, yeah. Love. Um, two years love. after they got married in 1858, they had a daughter named Elizabeth, and three years later they had a son named Robert Jr. Bobby Jr. Uh, Robert Jr. died when he was two. Uh, so, yeah. as most, as half of the children did back Leave then. Leave it to me for the early celebration. <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <No. clears throat> um, all during the time this was going on, Robert was still working on this ship, and he was trying to save his money up to buy freedom for his family and his wife, and probably himself. Um, I'm assuming they were probably owned by separate owners. Him, his, him and his wife were probably owned by separate people. Gotcha. And he was probably at least trying to get her to be free so she could come with him, you know. Um, plus, that whole sweet freedom thing is probably a good incentive I mean, to, like, I can do this. Yeah, you know? is that not enough? Yeah. All right. Uh, so he had saved up about 100 bucks, which is about $4,000 today, which back then, and remember, a, a dollar a week is a long time. Um, and... Unfortunately, the price for the family was going to be about 800 So it was going to take him more than a decade to save up the money that he needed. But, you know, this is around the eight, about 1860, so we all should know what's getting ready to happen. I have no idea what's getting ready to happen. No, no, you don't know what's going to happen in 1861? Oh, it's probably going to be a big war. Probably, because in April 1861, Battle of Fort Sumter broke out in Charleston Harbor. And the Civil War began. I'm going to give you a Zach fact. Oh, I didn't know that's where it broke out, actually. Yep. Um, it's estimated that over 40% of all African slaves sent to North America entered through the Charleston Harbor. 40%? Yeah. Wow. So wow. that was the Zach fact for you. Um, <laughs> by the fall of 1861, Robert was given the job to steer what had then become the CSS planter. So we've got USS. CSS was Confederate States ship. Yeah, right. Um, before the war, the planter had been used for transport, but when the war broke out, the planter, the owner of the planter, leased the ship to the Confederacy, which converted it to a lightly armed military transport. And this happened a lot. People they trying to help, you know, all those traders get more ships for the war. Right. Um, Robert was the wheelman for the planter, but he was really under the command of. Uh, District Commander Brigadier General Roswell S. Ripley, which is quite the title. 
I'm sure that guy was an asshole. <laughs> Roswell Ripley. Sounds like a yeah. wrestler from the 70s. <laughs> right, yeah. Some jobber. It's like, hey. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Welcome to the stage, Robert. Yeah, Roswell it's like me Ripley. me in some high-waisted shorts and white socks. He falls out like, the, like that one guy in the... I can't remember what his name was. Anyway. <laughs> oh, um, right. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, the planter's job, the planter is the boat, remember, it was, it was job, his job was to survey the waterways, lay mines, deliver troops, supplies, and dispatches throughout the, the coastal areas. Um, he was... Big boat guy. Yeah, he was uh, piloting the planter throughout all the harbors, rivers, and coasts of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida during this time. So, I mean, he was trusted, and he was pretty capable. Keep waiting for you to tell me he's going to be the planter's peanuts guy. (laughs) Damn it. Spoiler (laughs) alert. No. No. It was Mike Tyson's grandfather. For all I know, he had a peanut allergy. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So he was pretty trusted, and he was really capable. And... He had built the confidence with the white crew and owners because there were some slaves on the ships and a lot of white crew as well. Uh, but, you know, obviously a desire for freedom for him and his family was growing every day. And uh, I'd say I assumed that all slaves desired freedom more and more each day. right did you put that in your notes he wasn't alone in this in this thought process right um tell me more so around april of 1862 robert began to make a plan with the other slaves that crewed the planter with him and after a month or so of planning the time was finally right to get the plan going okay so early on may 12th the planter picked up four large guns 200 pounds of ammunition and 20 cords of firewood and docked in the wharf below General Ripley's headquarters. Remember Ripley, right? Roswell Ripley. Um, Just in case you don't know, a cord of firewood is a pile that's eight feet long, four feet high, and four feet wide. I mean, I knew it. And he picked up 20 cords, plus all that ammunition. Um, As the evening progressed... The white officers that were on the planter left the ship for the night, left, leaving Robert and the other slaves on board. This was pretty customary for the planter. I'm not sure if every ship was the same, but they didn't stay on the boat at night. If it was docked, they went into party. So they went into a Confederate party. I said it was probably some sort of inbred asshole frat. Um, they went to drink while Robert and the crew got to visit with their families who had been allowed to come on board. Uh, when the families got there, is when they found out what was what the plan was. Right. So a little bit later, the families were escorted away from the boat and taken. They were told they told the crew that they were taking them back home, but really they took them farther north to uh, put them in another boat, hide them in another boat. Around three o'clock that next morning, Robert put on the captain's uniform and a straw hat, and he and the other seven crew members set sail. They went north, picked up the families from the other ship, and began their attempted escape. All of a sudden, I've got the Gilligan's Island theme song in my head. (laughs) Right. Well, (laughs) it was a couple years before that. (laughs) Just a couple. Um, Because of his knowledge of the area, Robert piloted the ship past five separate Confederate checkpoints, giving the correct whistle and hand signals at each one. They just let him go. He was dressed like the captain. Right. It was dark. It's just like me playing Hitman. He even copied the captain's voice and his commands, fooling everybody. And uh, around 4.30, 
in the morning, the crew, Robert and his family, and all their families sailed past Fort Sumter. So there's this is from Wikipedia. It's two different books combined, I think, to make this. But um, it tells what happens at this point. As the nearly free, nearly free slaves approached Fort Sumter, their apprehension grew. It was the most heavily armed of the Confederate forts intended to be manned by the most suspicious soldiers. One of the men aboard later said, When we drew near the fort, every man but Robert Smalls felt his knees giving way, and the women began crying and praying again. As the planter approached the fort, several men urged Smalls to give it a wide berth. He refused, saying that such behavior would almost certainly arouse suspicion. He steered the ship along its normal path, slowly as though he was merely enjoying the early morning air and in no particular hurry. When Fort Sumter flashed a challenge signal, Smalls again gave the correct hand signs. There was a long pause. The fort didn't immediately respond, and Smalls now expected cannon fire to shred the planter at any moment. Finally, the fort signaled that all was well, and Smalls sailed his ship out of the harbor. Okay, so that's the recollection, recollection of that. Um, as the planter left gun range from Fort Sumter, the Confederates saw that instead of heading east towards what's called Morris Island, the planter was heading straight for the Union Navy. <laughs> they realized what happened, and they sounded an alarm. It was too late. Robert and his crew had gotten past them, and they took down the Confederate flag, put up a white flag, and started going right for the Union blockade of Fort Sumter. This was already... The Union Navy was right there, and he's taking this Confederate boat <laughs> right. straight towards them. Um, but he's got a white flag up at this point. Right, but it's 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> so you can't see the right. flag. They approached the USS Onward, which was a Navy clipper ship, and Robert and his crew all began to wonder if they'd be shot upon. A witness account will tell us what happens next okay oh, please do you have a recording <laughs> yes totally it's on dvd it's on floppy disk actually um just as number three port gun was being elevated someone cried out i see something that looks like a white flag and true enough there was something flying on the steamer that would have been white by application of soap and water as she neared us, we looked in vain for the face of a white man. When they discovered that we would not fire on them, there was a rush of contrabands out on her deck. Some dancing, some singing, whistling, jumping. And others stood looking towards Fort Sumter and muttering all sorts of maledictions against it. And, quote, the heart of the South, end quote, generally. Indeed. They call them a, a bunch of contrabands? Yes. Well, they were escaped slaves like, at that point. Right. As the steamer came near and under the stern of the onward, one of the colored men stepped forward and taking off his hat, taking off his hat, shouted, Good morning, sir. I brought you some of the United States guns, sir. That man was Robert Smalls. <laughs> End quote. Okay, so that's the witness recounting. The plane had worked. So John Frederick Nichols, the captain of the onward, boarded the planter and, and asked Robert, and Robert asked him, I'm sorry, to for a U.S. flag to hang on the, on the boat. He surrendered the ship, and also in, on the ship was also a captain's book com containing Confederate signals. All the, the, uh, the map of all the mines and torpedoes that had been, been placed in Charleston Harbor, and all of the cargo to the U.S. Navy that they just picked up the previous morning, all wow. that firewood and ammunition and stuff. <laughs> um, he handed it all over to the U.S. Navy. Robert's plan had led to 
had led to the escape from slavery to freedom for his family and at least a dozen more people. So his old family, plus those uh, the other people, the other crew members, plus their families, all were freed. Wow. Um, the information that Robert gave them in the books, the details of the fortifications that Confederates he had and he and didn't have, like where they had their, you know, fortifications all in right. that area. <coughs> Excuse me. They were uh, combined with the knowledge of his area was invaluable. Within a week of his escape, the, Uni- the Union, sorry, ca- captured Coles Island and its string of batteries without a fight. The Union held <laughs> this area for the remaining three years of the Civil War. It's funny you never hear this story. Right. Well, at, at 23, Robert was a hero in the North, covered in newspapers. He was only 23. Right. Newspapers, magazines covered him. And Congress passed a bill awarding the men prize money for their heroics. Robert received $1,500, which is about $45,000, for the capture of the planter and its value to the Union as a shallow bottom boat, as well as the cargo was, you know, obviously invaluable. Indeed. At the same time, this was going on. The South put a bounty on Robert's head for four thousand dollars, which was about one hundred twenty thousand dollars. They never got to pay that. <laughs> uh, he almost immediately began to serve the Union Navy, and uh, in August of eighteen sixty-two, Robert went to Washington D.C. to persuade Lincoln to permit African American men to fight for the Union. This meeting allowed for an order to be signed that allowed five thousand black men to serve, creating the first and second South Carolina colored regiments <laughs> he worked in the navy until 1863 when he was transferred to the army and he was present at, s- at least 17 major battles of the civil war all, all on ships i mean he was a ship right. guy you um, forget there was such a naval component to the civil right, war too. yeah yeah I mean, they absolutely. had submarines and stuff yeah Crazy really ass. crude ones yeah, absolutely some guy yeah. blowing air down into mm-hmm. a tube yeah, it sounds pretty damn some scary with a snorkel <laughs> yeah. it's like is this made of wood right <laughs> Um, iron. Well, yeah, yeah, iron. I was like, actually, no, it's not made of wood. <laughs> iron and wood, yeah. In December 1863, Robert was promoted to rank of captain, and he was the first African-American to ever command a vessel in the United States military. In 1864, <laughs> while he was in Philadelphia to get the planner and overhaul and to support, excuse me, efforts to educate and develop former slaves, Robert was riding on a streetcar, when he was asked, when he was told to give up his seat to a white passenger, well, he he was felt that was a humiliation to a war hero. I don't think he thought of himself as a as a war hero, but um, this incident eventually was used in support of a bill that passed Pennsylvania's it passed in Pennsylvania's legislature in 1867 that integrated public transportation. Oh wow! 88 years before Rosa Parks. <laughs> yeah. Um, Robert and the planters of Robert and the <laughs> take planter. that Rosa. Yeah, in your face. <laughs> Robert and the planters supported Sherman and his march to the sea that eventually defeated the traitors to the United States, and he returned to Charleston Harbor in 1865 to raise the American flag at Fort Sumter, which signaled the end of the Civil no, that's War. That's pretty awesome. Um, after the war, he immediately took the planter to deliver food and supplies to freedmen who had lost everything during the war. Um, after that, he returned back to Beaufort, where he did some, I said some balling ass shit. Because <laughs> he bought the big house that used to belong to that guy, McKee, that, that asshole that owned him. He bought that house. Nice. Uh, the house is on 511 Prince Street in Beaufort, if you're ever there. Still there. 
Yeah, and it had been seized by the Union tax collectors in 1863 because, of course, asshole McKee refused to pay his taxes. Yeah. And Robert bought the house at an auction. And in 1975, the house was designated a National Historic Landmark. That took that long, though. Yeah. Um, Here's another fun fact. This is a Zach fun fact. (laughs) McKee came back at some point and sued Robert to try and get the house back. But the court shot him down and told that asshole to make like a tree and get the fuck out. He Make tried like to a see, tree and get out of yeah, here. He, he tried to he tried to get the house back, but the courts and that that precedent held up for a lot of other similar cases to help freed slaves right. have property. And that was early on too. I mean, yeah. I mean not early enough, but early well, it's on. It's the beginnings mm-hmm. of Reconstruction, right? Um, Robert's mother lived with him in the home for the rest of her life, and in some truly good human being type shit. Like this guy was a super good guy, because. Later on, it didn't really specify when, but the for, his former owner's wife, um, so McKee's wife, as she was elderly, McKee had already died. She was suffering from mental issues, probably dementia. Mm-hmm. She came back to the house thinking that it was her home. Oh, wow. And she, st- she still thought that she lived there, and Robert welcomed her in and let her live in her former bedroom until she passed away. <laughs> Wow. So he he let this lady who I mean I don't know how much the lady of the house was really involved with like the mistreatment or better treatment or whatever I don't know sure but he let her live in in her old bedroom until she died because he just you know he was that kind of guy well right yeah <laughs> um, Robert, Robert had a, Smalls yeah had a value for education and helping people obviously um after the war he he hired two tutors sorry two tutors (laughs) two tutors to help him and his family to uh learn to read and write and then he lived heavily ever after (laughs) just kidding (laughs) i said obviously robert can't stop won't stop because he went into business to develop planters peanuts the charleston beaufort region of uh, south carolina in 1866, he and his partner opened a store to, that served uh, freed slaves and bought a two-story building to use as a school for African-American children. Um, Better than planters. Within nice. two years, he had become a delegate at the South Carolina Constitutional Convention, where he worked to make free compulsory schooling available to all children in South Carolina, and he is seen as by many historians as the father of public, public education in the United States. Oh, wow. In 1868, I'm sorry, he was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives where he introduced a Homestead Act and also passed a Civil Rights Bill. (laughs) 1870, him and some others formed a company called the Enterprise Railroad in anticipation of Reconstruction. They built an 18-mile horse-drawn railway, which is like a, uh, call it trolley, horse-drawn trolley throughout the area. They used to carry cargo and riders between different areas around Charleston. And the entire co- board of the company, aside from one man, was black. And which that was completely unheard of at the time. It was all black run, basically. Um, that same year, he was uh, elected to fill a state senate seat, which had been vacated when the previous holder, previous holder was uh, nominated to the state Supreme Court. Wow. So he's in the state senate now. In 1872... All before 1900. Yeah, this is 1872. Uh, he's uh, because he's in fact the OG. He was reelected to the Senate, and just for good measure, he uh, well in, in Buford he started a uh, newspaper called the Buford Southern Standard, 
because you know he just needed to do <laughs> more stop won't stop so, is that what you yeah, said right yeah so i said <laughs> robert's all done right wrong <laughs> in 1872, he was elected vice president of the South Carolina Republican Party at a state convention. And obviously, this was before the party switched. Right. That's a whole other story. Um, he was a delegate at the National Republican Convention Center, or convention that year, and every subsequent year until 19, or 1896. In 1873, he was appointed to, like, state militia and eventually promoted to Major General of the 2nd Division of the, essentially the National Guard. And he did that until 1877. Oh, wow. In 1874, Robert was elected to the first of his two terms to the United States House of Representatives. Serving the 5th District of South Carolina, it was the last Republican, again, before, since the parties flipped, but he was the last Republican to be elected to this, in this district in, until 2010, oh, wow. when they elected Mick Mulvaney, so another <laughs> asshole makes an appearance in this story. <laughs> wow. That was a long damn time, though. Yeah. Um, in 1883, Hannah died. And uh, seven years later, he married a school teacher named... Uh, Hannah. Annie. Annie Wig. And they had a son, Robert. His name was Robert as well. And that son lived until 1970. So, I mean, you know, this is... We're like two generations from this guy. Great. Um, the same year he, ma he married Annie, he was appointed duty collector of the Port of Beaufort by President uh, William Harrison, a position he held until 1913. Um, in 1890, he did something he rarely did. We're going to find out he lived to be 175. <laughs> right. Too. He's still alive. <laughs> um, he, in 1890, he did something he rarely did. He didn't do something. There you go. I was waiting for it. I'm like, just take a break, man. He turned down a colonel position in an all-black military regiment in the Spanish-American War and was also appointed to be a minister to Liberia, but he refused that as well because he was starting to suffer from the effects of diabetes. He continued on with his service and his business working to help his community and, uh, let's be honest, the whole world. Yeah. Um, on February 25th, 23rd, 1915, so coming up on the anniversary of, he died at the age of 75. So he was still doing stuff for many, many years. He died of malaria and diabetes, and I couldn't find out how he got malaria, but I'm just going to assume there's some balling-ass shit way that he got right. malaria. Well, it might have been more common in the States back, back well, in yeah, the day. Well, yeah, plus, but... I mean, down in the, the swampy areas right. of fucking South Carolina. Yeah, exactly. So, Robert's buried at the cemetery in Ta of Tabernacle Baptist Church in downtown Beaufort. A bust of Robert is there <clears throat> with an inscription from his 1895 statement to the South Carolina legislature. It says, My race needs no special defense, for the past history of them in this country proves them to be equal, be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. On May 13th every year in South Carolina, it's Robert Small's Day. Um, Robert Small's Day. Robert Robert Small's Day. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Uh, Fort Robert Small's was built by freed slaves in Pittsburgh in 1863 and remained in use until the 1940s. Like I said, the house that he grew up in and then later bought is now a national landmark. There's schools around there named after him. Camp Robert Smalls was used in, during World War II to train black Navy sailors in the Great Lakes Naval Training Center. In 2004, the Army named a support ship after him. Support ship after him. He 
the first one named for an African-American. On March 1st of last year, the United States Navy renamed the USS Chancellorsville to the USS Robert Smalls as part of the renaming of many things that were going on in the military. Uh, I said, check out episode nine of this earlier this season called There Are Veterans Among Us, and you can find out more because I talk about <laughs> them renaming all the forts. It's one of our better titles, too. Um, in 2010, he was inducted into the South Carolina Hall of Fame, and yes, there is a South Carolina Hall of Fame. I bet you there's a Hall of Fame for everywhere. Probably. So that's uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Robert Smalls. Like, I mean, pretty much like the guy could do whatever he wanted, it seemed like. Yeah. yeah. And I if mean, you see his picture, he's like a very, like, He's like a chubby guy and like kind of regally, kind of looks a little bit like uh, Wilford Brimley, but like if Wil- Wilford Brimley was like a badass. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, definitely a true patriot for sure. I mean, yeah. uh, instrumental. Right. I even. mean, if he had been caught, all those people would have been killed. Yeah, man. No I mean, question about it. They would have mm-hmm. killed all of them. And to just go straight up into the, the nose of a U.S. Navy ship. Yeah, I mean, balls to the wall. what used to be like a cotton hauling boat. I mean, I think in that situation, it probably helps that he was only 23, because it's like, you yeah. know, nothing can kill you at 23. Sure, right, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I mean, he lived a long time. Yeah. I mean, 23 was a lot older back then than 23, 23 is now. 23 might as well have been yeah. 90 back then, <laughs> right. especially for like a slave. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, I'm still not 23 of 1861 or right. whatever it was. Right. Well, mine... um. I don't know. That one had, like, a upbeat kind of... Uh-oh. Like, we're going uh, opposites again. Well, you know, it was kind of dark last week. Right. Like, this one, I mean, it's, it's kind of dark, but uh, but it also kind of starts where some of my stories normally do, like down a rabbit hole somewhere. It's uh, Lake Lanier, Lake Lanier, spelled L-A-N-I-E-R, Lake Lanier okay. in Georgia. It's actually called Lake Sydney Lanier. Um, named after... Sidney Lanier? <laughs> I'm going to guess Sidney Lanier. <laughs> right. Named after Confederate poet Sidney Lanier. It was built and is operated by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers for flood control and water supplies. Or the Corps of Engineers. Yeah, Corps. I was thinking that as soon as corpse came <laughs> he, out of my mouth. He but said I, that. I was like, I don't think that's what that <laughs> is. I was like, hopefully he'll let it go. So a bunch but of army, army zombies are taking care of it. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, my story... Um, think i was ranting last year when i did my topic on uh, just who created black history month um right about you know how like black history for lack of a better word can be integrated into just regular old history at some point in time <laughs> and so my story kind of does that when i first heard about my story it was uh all about this town called uh oscarville that was buried under lake lanier Okay. And um, how this was an all-black town that got buried, and there's lots of drowned towns in the United oh, States yeah. throughout there's history. one right near us, yeah. Yep, I didn't know that. But yeah. um, it turns out this is not a drowned black town, though there is still some pretty tragic black history involved. But um, what I'm going to start with is uh, 10 Reasons Lake Lanier Might Be Haunted. Okay. <laughs> and this is from listverse.com. Um, I have as number one so many deaths. 500 people have died at Lake Lanier since its formation, which was 1956, uh, with 200 deaths occurring between 1994 and 2022. Good grief. Right? The lake receives around 11 million visitors annually, but its popularity doesn't explain that extraordinary number of deaths, um, because the lake nearby, Lake Alatuna, which sees nearly the same number of visitors yearly, has only one-third of the deaths. (laughs) It's still a lot. It's still a lot, yeah. 
Um, Can anybody uh, in Georgia swim? Is that the thing? Well, in Georgia, I guess like the state, uh, whoever polls and investigates these sort of things, they say that it's mostly due to uh, like drunken people, drunken accidents. Oh, well. Um, still, it's a lot, though. It's, it's one a, of those kind of lakes. Right, yeah. It's impossible to predict precisely how many lives will be lost at Lake Lanier each year. Six people drowned in 2022, four in 21, seven in 2020. The only statistic more shocking is when seven people died in a single day. Known as the deadliest day in the history of Lake Lanier, seven member, members of two Gainesville, Georgia families passed away after their station wagon crashed down a 30-foot embankment and plunged into the lake on Christmas Day, 1964. <laughs> God. Yeah. So, um, let's see. So uh, they can't swim or drive. <laughs> right. And speaking of people who can't drive, number two is the Lady of the Lake. One night in 1958, Delia Mae Parker Young and Susie Roberts left a local dance. Um, they stopped for gas and decided to steal that gas. So as they're speeding away, um, they uh, cross over a bridge and go off of the bridge into the lake. Um and they die, of course. Their car sunk into the lake's depths where it remained for over three decades before being discovered by officials. Neither of the women survived the accident. Over time, the tragedy morphed into a haunting legend, the Lady of the Lake. The legend surrounds a spectral figure often described as a woman in a blue dress that matched Susie Roberts' dress that night. The evil figure, typically spotted near the bridge without her hands, attempts to lure unsuspecting souls to share her fate, a watery grave. Huh. <laughs> right? Number three, there's the death of Kyle Glover. This one I might actually, oh, I'm sorry, this is the wrong one. But So I won't be going back to this story, but kind of timely because Usher was uh, the, high, the halftime show at the Super Bowl. Uh-huh. His son uh, was Kyle Glover, or not his son, but his ex-wife's son was Kyle Glover, who died oh, in Lake okay. Lanier in July of 2012. Um, let's see, he died, he was, on a, he was on an inner tube that got struck by a jet ski. Oh, Basically, so yeah, 11 years later, uh, his mom has collected over 2,500 signatures for a petition imploring officials to drain, clean, and restore Lake Lanier. Because apparently when they created this lake, uh, I mean, they did bury the town of Oscarville, which we'll get to and I'll talk about more, but um, they didn't really clean up much. So there's still uh, barbed wire fences, buildings, all sorts of stuff. There are still some graves of whites and blacks, right. you know, because they they claim they tried to move as many people as possible, but when there was no family present or anyone to okay such a move, they didn't. Do right. It. So you know, there are stories of people finding dead bodies and dead body parts and stuff like that. Um, number four, the really weird one that I might come back to tell about some other time is the disappearance of Kelly Nash. I misspelled disappearance. Kelly Nash disappeared on January 5th, 2015. His girlfriend, Jessica Sexton, informed police that Nash woke up at 4 a.m. that morning in their home in Buford, Georgia, funny, Buford, Georgia, coughing, sneezing, and feeling unwell. When she woke again a few hours later, Nash was gone. His truck, wallet, and cell phone were left behind. The only thing missing was a 9mm handgun. Family, friends, and authorities tried everything to discover what happened to Nash, including offering a $50,000 reward. The only evidence found was a surveillance video from a local gas station recorded the night before his disappearance. In the video, Nash picked up a few items while on the phone with his girlfriend, but the recording showed nothing unusual. I wonder how they found out it was his girlfriend from the recording. That's just a joke. Uh, but, yeah. A fisherman found Nash's body in Lake Lanier on the evening of February 8th, 2015. He was wearing the same pajama pants and dark shirt he'd had on in the surveillance video. Authorities discovered a gunshot wound on his body, but ruled his death a drowning. 
Sorry, that silence was on purpose. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> that's why I'm like, need to go back to this one. After the month-long search, Alan Nash said of his son, quote, he saw what he wanted in life, he had figured it out, and was working to get there. Strong relationships were what he wanted. Kelly wasn't driven by money, but by doing things the right way. I thought it was right to include that quote, but just strange incidents. So basically, yeah. I'm even going to skip some of the things I have here. Lots of strange incidents happen there, like, you know, is it haunted for real? And perhaps it should be because, you know, of how it was created and all the things yeah. <laughs> buried in the lake. But um, there are some strange deaths, an inordinate amount of bus accidents, uh, electrocutions, bus or buses, boats, boats just catching on fire, weird things happening. Um, but the tragic history of the area begins with uh, what this article was calling two expulsions. And uh, you'll find out what I mean by expulsions. So until the mid-19th century, the Cherokee Nation inhabited the region of Forsyth County that would later become Lake Lanier. The U.S. government expulsed, expulsed most of the members of the Cherokee people in the 1830s in what would ultimately become known as the southeasternmost origins of the Trail of Tears. Another expulsion occurred in the same region 80 years later, only this time a different community was the target, and this is kind of the, what I'm talking about tonight. After the Civil War, Forsyth County became home to many black and white settlers, but that changed in 1912 after the assault and murder of eight, an 18-year-old white woman named May Crow. A white lynch mob killed the suspect, 24-year-old Robert Big Rob Edwards, and then began to attack all the black residents, forcing, forcing most of them to flee the county within about two months. The mob claimed the land through a legal process, legal should have quotes around it, legal process right. called, quote, adverse possession. A, a, a legal process <laughs> called strong arming right, and yeah. intimidation. Called something we just made up so we could take this. Right. Many believe these two unforgivable unforg acts left a stain on the land that remains today. So perhaps if it's haunted, it's, uh, and I'll get back to talking about that expulsion of, um, of uh, black people from the area but we're uh, gonna go to the third expulsion first like when the uh, lake was actually created in the 50s Forsyth County saw one final expulsion when the United States Army Corps of Engineers decided to put a lake near Atlanta Georgia to provide hydroelectric power water and flood protection to nearby counties not a bad idea because it was much needed at the time Right, uh, and no, that's why all those, they're all there because of dams. Most of the bodies of water in Georgia, I learned, I figured this out, are created, you know, man-made. Like Virginia. Exactly, yeah. yeah. In exchange for their farmland, the government offered money to the locals, many of whom had owned the land for generations, uh, perhaps when they stole it from all the black people that lived there, and <laughs> right. considered it priceless. Quote, anger, resentment, fear, anxiety, bewilderment, and apprehension were among the emotions stirred in residents at the relocation. Around 700 families eventually sold 56,000 acres, which enabled a dam to be built on the Chattahoochee River to form the lake. Should I sing the song? Mm. Way yeah. down yonder on the Chattahoochee, it yeah. gets hotter than the hoochie coochie. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even put that, that in the was, notes. That's so. That sounded just like the song. <laughs> Is that Alan Jackson? Ooh, I, yeah. Locals watch. Well, now we know about that outlaw country uh, <laughs> cruise. <laughs> Mojo Nixon and Alan Jackson. Although I think Alan Jackson might have passed as well. Anyway, mm -hmm. locals watched as everything they had abandoned was covered by the rising waters in 1956. Despite the government's assurance that residents were receiving the total value of the land and buildings, some families came to regret their decision once they found they couldn't live off of what the government offered. Mm -hmm. So uh, this third expulsion, I think sometimes uh, 
gets mixed up, or at least more recently when this story has been told, because the story of Oscarville hasn't been told very much, especially the black history part of it. All right. But um, I think it's gotten kind of confused because people say that this is a black town that got drowned so this lake could be created. And at this point in time, it was a white town. And in fact, it always was a white town. It just had the most black residents of any town in the area back in the day. Right. So at 1912, when they drove all the black people out, it had the most black residents of any town around, maybe in all of the South. Hmm. So, so there's a little confusion, not taking away from it, but it's a right. funny way that history can like be told wrong one way, but then be told wrong again when you're trying to retell it. Right. <laughs> and so it never gets told the right way. But um, so let's see. So what happened in 1912? I uh, found an article, a Medium article, by Monique Rojas, and uh, she kind of sets up this myth-fact sort of thing. Um, but she says, a local, uh, or Lake Lanier, a local attraction that often draws attention for the fatalities that occur in its waters, was established through eminent domain, much like Lake Blue Ridge in Fannin County and other man-made bodies of water in Georgia, to supply the Buford Dam. Before the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers created Lake Lanier, the area held a history of pain, death, and ongoing racial tension. There is a long-standing myth that this body of water was created to flood a predominantly black town in Forsyth named Oscarville. The idea is not implausible, given a historical instances of racial violence against black communities. However, the characterization of Oscarville as an all-black town obliterated by floodwaters is more myth than reality. So the myth is Oscarville was an all-black town and people were kicked out to make room for Lake Lanier. The fact is Oscarville was a predominantly white town. The mass exodus of black residents from the town is true, but it occurred across Forsyth County. At the start of the 20th century, after Reconstruction, there is a clear shift in favor of separating black and white citizens. Segregation. As the publisher of the Atlanta Journal, now known as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, um, this guy, uh, the Georgia governor, M. Hoke Smith, his views were reflected in a uh, newspaper's reporting in the Atlanta, sorry, I screwed that all up, but <laughs> blah, blah, blah. As the publisher, M. Hoke Smith, he, um, his, he reflected his views quite often about um, segregation and how he was all about it. So that's basically his platform running for governor in 1906, sure. is segregation. The paper's unfounded stories about black men attacking white women contributed to the escalating violence against black people in the South. Heightened tension erupted in the 1906 Atlanta race massacre, leading to the death of 23 black Atlantans and two white ones. The horrific event revealed an increasing resentment from many white people stemming from the ratification of the 14th and 15th Amendments, which um, established citizenship and voting rights for formerly, formerly enslaved individuals. Of course, then they started you know, creating other types of laws to keep black yeah, people Jim from Crow. voting. Yeah. Right, exactly. One year after the Atlanta race massacre, about the growing number of what was once known as race riots across the U.S., District, District Attorney of Georgia, Hooper Alexander, how about that name, Hooper, um, he wrote in an essay, Lynch law, so-called, has been, in the main, administered by men of at least comparative prominence in their several communities, men who at least believed they were establishing order and so discharging a public duty. The Atlanta riot was wholly wanting and responsible leadership, was lawlessness pure and simple, with no redeeming motive, and sprang from unmitigated race hatred. The socio-political climate created a volatile environment in Georgia that could, easily have, that could be easily agitated. Several years later, Forsyth County was at the center of more unrest that would initiate the mass exodus of more than 1,000 black residents within a few months. And this is uh, the one that happened at Oscarville. So, 
Um, let me skip ahead a little bit here. This is from Wikipedia. This is about the May Crow assault that happened um, September 8th, 1912. Uh, May Crow was um, an 18-year-old white girl who went missing near Cumming, Georgia. The next day, searchers found the missing girl. She um, was going from Cumming? <laughs> hey, hey, now. <clears throat> um, <laughs> the next day, she was found um, in secluded woods about one mile from her house. She was lying face down in a pool of blood, and her throat had been slashed. She was still alive and breathing, though she would later die of her injuries. Um, they would arrest someone named Ernest Knox. At the scene where the girl was found, searchers found a small pocket mirror that was said to belong to Ernest Knox, a 16-year-old black boy. Police arrested him at home, taking him to the Hall County Jail in Gainesville, Gainesville, Gainesville to avoid the recent turmoil of coming. On the way, Knox confessed to having attacked Crow after being subjected to a form of torture known as mock lynching. I meant to look up what mock lynching was, but sounds like uh, the story is maybe they forced a confession out of him, which, yeah, as sure. we know these days, is... They would never do yeah, that. Yeah, right. And it's, and it's a lot easier to come by than one would think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Knox was said to have struck Crow from behind and dragged her down a gully in the woods. He allegedly assaulted the girl with a rock and raped her. Around midnight that day, is what it said in Wikipedia, so Knox returned to the scene with three acquaintances, Oscar Daniel, 17, Oscar's sister, Trussie Jane Daniel, and Jane's live-in boyfriend, Rob Edwards. The men reportedly, quote, satisfied their lustful passions on the girl. When word spread of the attack on Crow, a white lynch mob began to form that afternoon at the Gainesville jail. That night, police officers took Knox by car to Atlanta to prevent a lynching. So... They lynched Robert Edwards instead. Robert Edwards was arrested the next day as a suspect in Crow's attack and was taken to the county jail in Cumming. Later that day, a lynch mob attacked the county jail. Some men gained entry, dragged Edwards from his cell, and hanged him from a telephone pole in the town square. He may have been shot to death before being hanged. The Atlanta Georgian reported that the corpse was mangled into something hardly resembling a human form. Ugh. Daniel and No, the other two men, um, would also eventually be sentenced to hanging for their alleged roles in the incident. Um, immediately after being jailed, white vigilantes known as Night Riders, which I think is early KKK, gutted homes of personal belongings across Forsyth County and ignited black-owned properties. <clears throat> Over three months, more than 1,000 black residents were pushed into neighboring counties to escape the violence that permeated Forsyth. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, it is a pretty incredible uh, like population shift. So um, on AtlantaHistoryCenter.com, they had a, an article about Forsyth County. And in 1910, this is before the May Crow thing happened, um, the United States Census Bureau abstract for Georgia reported 11,940 people living in For Forsyth County. Of those 11,940, the Bureau reported 10,842 were white, 1,098 were black. Um, <clears throat> in the black population, apparently they included what they called black and mulatto, which mulatto refers to a mixed-race person. All right. um, mulatto would also refer probably to any other brown person that wasn't considered black. All right. <laughs> um, let's see. So... Uh, of the mulattoes and black, that was 1,117 people in the county, making up 9% of the population of Forsyth. So not as many as, you know, the story has kind of grown ground recently, and it was like, all oh, the blacks, like, you know, the whole town was black. Right. No white people in the area. It's not quite true. Um, were they living in harmony? Absolutely not. 
Black for, for Scythians lived across the county, but most lived in or near the city of Cumming and the southwest part of Forsyth, which was closest to the Georgia state capital in Atlanta. Um, most of the um, occupations in the area were, uh, were farmers. Most of it was rural population. Most of it was farming, um, also including uh, teaching, blacksmithing, carpentry. Um, <clears throat> about a quarter of the black households in Forsyth owned property, which I thought was, not, I mean, that's not a lot, but right. it was more than I would have thought. Of the 210 black household listed on the 1910 census, 40 owned properties and 170 rented. The 40 black landowners in Forsyth owned hundreds of acres of land. The 23.5% of black households in Forsyth, Forsyth who owned land were on par with the national average of 237 so, uh, you know, pretty normal state, uh, right. countrywide, although they had an inordinate amount of black people in the, in the population. Statewide, the quarter of black households that owned property in Forsyth was statistically higher than the Georgia average for black household ownership, which was only 15.3. Um, so when the white residents began forcing out the black residents um, after 1912, some black landowners sold their land early at a loss, but most had to abandon their properties. They were never able to return and claim the land because white residents barred black people from entering or living in the county through threats, intimidation, and violence. White residents also took over the land as their own once it was legally declared abandoned. And I put in my notes, but did they actually wait for it to be, quote, legal? I'm sure. As Forsyth County transitioned from a rural to a suburban area, white families sold this land to business entities and the local government to create neighborhoods, shopping centers, and schools. Today, the average selling price for a property in Forsyth County is more than $900,000. Sure, yeah. So when people talk reparations, like it's that kind of number that they're talking about. Because right. it's like, well, that could be my family. It's really similar <laughs> to like that in California. They had that Bruce's Beach mm -hmm. where the family owned this beachfront property and the city took it. And then now it's worth like twenty five million dollars, right? And they're like, "We want our land back or our money." And they had they finally won. Yeah, I'm but sure, it's the same right. thing. That, yeah. Well, that's ours. You live there, but it's ours, and now we get to reap all the benefits from it. Yeah, through some like kind of half assed eminent domain, right? Um. <clears throat> so let's see. Let me get a let me get ahead here because. Um, the way that things changed. So Forsyth County from 1920 to 1980. In 1920, the U.S. Census Bureau reported 11,755 people living in Forsyth County. Of those 11,755, the Bureau reported 11,725 white residents and 30 black residents. Wow. So in less than, uh, well, this was 1920 to 19, but this was night less than 10 years later. Do you imagine what kind of badass you'd have to be to be a black guy that's still living there? Right. It's like, I'm not moving. Yeah. You guys make me move. Because like, oh, I don't know. Eight years before, they had um, over 1,100 black residents, and now they're down to 30. While the total population decreased by 1.6%, the white population increased by 8.1%, 8 and the black population decreased by 97.3%. All the reported black residents in the 1920 Forsyth County Census lived in Big Creek, the southernmost district of Forsyth County, which today borders Fulton County. While there are black residents reported in the 30, 40, and 50 censuses as living in Forsyth County, it is much more likely these residents lived in a town that bordered the county called Sheltonville, and later, I love this, Shake Rag. The area is current-day Johns Creek in Fulton County. And um, 
So I wrote in my notes, so what of this third expulsion, which was basically an expulsion of the white people that, you know, had taken over all of that land, which had been the black part of town, and how did Oscarville end up under Lake Lanier? Um, This is back to that Medium.com article where the myth is residents of Oscarville were killed using floodwaters. The fact is the land was vacated long before the water started trickling into what became Lake Lanier. As the mass displacement of black Forsythians became another facet of Georgia's history, the remaining white residents of Oscarville continued farming, raising families, and living out their lives until the U.S. military claimed roughly a quarter of the town through eminent domain on behalf of the Atlanta government. Atlanta desperately needed fresh water, and displacing people in small farming towns and rural areas was an expedient way to help meet the water demands of growing metropol- of the growing metropolitan epicenter. The Industrial Bureau and Chamber of Commerce met in April 1947 to officially move forward with the building of the Buford Dam, which would pool water in Forsyth County to create Lake Lanier. Um, the government ended up purchasing 56,000 acres of private land through eminent domain. Ultimately, white residents from the small section of Oscarville, who had previously fought to cleanse the area of black people, had to leave their property to, the, to birth the body of water. And and it's too bad they didn't let them stay. Right. I say, so it's haunted by the spirits of angry black people? Myth. People die at Lake Lanier because the ghosts of former black residents of Oscarville haunt the waters. Fact, many factors contribute to deaths at Lake Lanier outside of the supernatural. Um, Bush light, <laughs> bud light. <laughs> right. And I think I, I've already gone over most of those uh, statistics. So, so basically, the, this is like the part of this is like the subplot of deliverance. <laughs> like, I mean, deliverance is not about that, but the subplot is that all these people are in this area that they're trying to clear out. Right, because they're turning the yeah, river, I they're, yeah, they're damming is... the river, which is going to turn this valley into a lake. Yep, yep, yep. Essentially, yeah. yep. Which was a much needed lake. Like it's, I right. mean, the reasonings were correct, but I mean, throwing anyone off their land, whether right. it's the the but black happened, people before it happened, them, especially but, you know. like you know, especially after we started in the like building all the dams throughout the country, yeah. you know, like the Tennessee Valley uh, acts and stuff like that. Right. There were like I think it was. Um, FDR. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this was slightly after, but yes, right yeah, around right. that time. But they started <clears throat> doing that, and started, yeah. that caused cities to grow, which meant that they had to do it more and more places to have mm-hmm. dams. We live near Clater Lake, right? And there's a town called Ingalls. Yeah. It's on the bottom of uh, Clater oh, Lake. Oh, I that's had where heard uh, okay. Mary Ingalls Wilder from like Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> she was that town was. I, I think it was like she was born there, right? And that they had to leave the town, so like the town's still there. So it's like if you were to scuba dive there, and like I'm, I'm sure it's after all these years, it's like rotted out or whatever. Right. But there used to be like you could still see the church and the steeple and everything, and like they used to have problems with boats hitting the steeple. Oh yeah, that's you know, uh, like so. Lake Lanier is very much the same. So you know, you, trees would pop right. up out of the ground. You know? Yeah, I looked up some pictures, and like yeah, there were times. Yeah, trees are coming up. You can see. Uh, structures uh there are stories of people you know getting caught up in barbed wire like i'd said yeah, or like old fence yeah, yeah. one uh, experienced diver of the area i think he would help like search and rescue a lot he said that you know he claimed that sometimes you'd just be in the water and you would reach out and you might feel an arm or a leg not attached to something it's like, oh wow sounded kind of like bs but at and the then, same and time and then you'd squeal like a pig <laughs> and then you'd squeal like a pig boy <laughs> um Let's see. I uh, just wanted to mention that I stumbled across this story because I was completely going to do something else. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. uh, Funny you brought up San Francisco again because there's a movie called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. 
Hmm. And it was about um, the displacement of, uh, of black families, not just San Francisco, but city, you know, gentrification, essentially. Right. But this one is a true story. The movie's based on a true story about this guy um, who actually stars in the movie um, that is trying to get back his family's house that's in San Francisco. And, mm-hmm. like, there were other people living there, this white family, and he would go and, like, paint their house and like do stuff in the yard and garden they kept trying to get rid of him right but like you know he just uh kept going back i i, I gotta admit i forgot how the story ended because i didn't actually finish researching he probably one, didn't get the house back i'm pretty sure he does not get the house back but yeah there's not a lot of happy endings with <laughs> a lot it, of these is his name jimmy fails is his name jimmy fails if you look him up he's been in a lot of movies since then and uh you know kind of famous skateboarder as well but um hmm. you know san francisco man but uh, this story uh, about Oscarville, um, I saw like a bit that Amber Ruffin did on the Amber Ruffin Show, mm-hmm. and she was talking about drowned black communities. And so I started looking it up, and I found out that, well, this isn't technically a drowned black community like she was talking about, but it is still an important story. And, I mean, yeah, there were still, you know, black people were displaced. Sure. <laughs> and, like, oh, yeah. You know, the tragedy, I mean, even before that, the Cherokee were displaced. Well, that's not like, to mention I mean, all the other things that happened that are similar. They're not displaced in that way, but, like, right. they're like, oh, well, the city needs a place to put all these burning tires. So put it near the black neighborhood. Well, right. They yeah, didn't put exactly. it near the, like, rich white neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So, you know, then you start seeing, like, these long-term generational things. Of, oh, well, these people who live around here live shorter lives right. or have, like... Their, their property values are worth nothing. You know, like redlining was kind of the same kind of thing, you know. Like, oh, well, we'll, we'll let you build in this neighborhood. We'll give you great deals on loans, but if you let one black person in, nobody gets loans. Right. You know, that's, yeah. what, that's what they did with a lot of that stuff. So that's why you're seeing, you know, like your grandparents built a house that cost $18,000, and now it's worth $700,000. And, you know, somebody's black grandparents built a house that was $18,000, and now it's worth $16,000. Right. Because it's in the worst neighborhood, and it's, you know, right next to a shingle factory or yeah. something like that. You know, it's like well, I know Jimmy, stuff, you know. Jimmy Fail's family's home ended up in a very affluent part of town. Right. <laughs> like where it is now is like, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a good part of town. And, right, you know, I, yeah, not all of them can be like Robert right. Smalls and come back and buy that house <laughs> right. back up. I mean, he got it on a tax auction, so yeah, yeah. I mean, good for him. But in that you case, know, he couldn't have bought it now. I mean, that dude was doing things that that black people weren't doing right. at that time. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, pretty incredible. Balling. So yeah, my story didn't follow that one up. You kind of joked about that before, but uh, it's all right. But, well, yeah, but nonetheless, that's, that's how you know that this isn't planned out. It was better than just the guy that created Black History Month, though. So. Right. I blew last year way out of the water. Yeah. <laughs> His name was uh, Charles. Not, it was a Charles Woodson. It yeah. was no, that, that was it. Charles yeah, it Woodson. Was Charles Woodson. Because that's the football player. It's, uh, yeah, but it's, was yeah. it also? I know I'm it was sure Woodson. That but I, yeah, must have. Anyway, the, yeah, that was uh, Oscarville and Carter Lake Woodson. Lanier. His name was Carter Woodson. Yeah, it was Carter Woodson. Charles there Woodson is also equally a, <laughs> right. a famous Black American. Yeah, he is a famous Black American. All right, well, sweet. So yeah, Happy Black History Just Month, Lake everybody. Lake Lanier. Lake Lanier. If you're going there, just stay in your boat. I, I was like, I, a lot of people Don't call it Lake Sydney Lanier, but I'm like, eh, like eh, Confederate poet, whatever. Like Lake Lanier, it is. I was going to read the a poem, the poem he wrote about the Chattahoochee, but I skipped that. It's too. way down it's yonder on the, the Chattahoochee. It gets hotter than the Hoochie Coochie. Yeah, that's how it starts. <laughs> huh? Well, it's it's been renamed Lake Allen Jackson. <laughs> right. Wow. <laughs> Who would have thought that people in uh, Georgia would have so much trouble doing normal things like 
swimming. Well, I mean, being that close to Florida. That's true. Yeah. There's always something good and happy happening in Florida, too. Shiny, happy people. Wow. Well, that's another uh, wonderful uh, intername here in the books, right? Hip-hop hooray. We're down to... Give away. We're coming close on the end of our uh, second season. We are. Four more episodes, I think. I think, yeah. Something like that. We we didn't take a break at all during this season. No. We deserved a break. That's right. And you don't deserve a break. Keep listening to us. Um, and if you if you entered um, if you send us an email, you too might win a chance to um, to sit in to on, sit on, in on a live recording. Yeah, I almost yeah. forgot you were over there. You've been so quiet. Yeah. <laughs> in the squeaky, you can sit in the squeaky chair or one of the <laughs> other stools that we have in here. That was the old chair I sat in on that episode where Kayla thought I farted. Hey, Kayla. All right. Well, he really did. So, anyways, um, right. go on uh, organdonor.gov and do your best to donate be as, your organs. Be as good as you can. Yeah. You know, we're not all going to be, you know, in the spirit people. of Robert Smalls, everybody. Yeah. Do something good for other people. Indeed. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you guys on the next one. Bye.